Our sermon text for today is from Psalm 32. Let's give, again give careful attention to God's holy word. A psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silence, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that we would learn from this song. We need illumination from you so that we understand and obey. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to receive, and hearts to love and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, if you were asked, should the Christian life be one of joy and thankfulness? You would probably answer yes. I mean, you see it in many places in Scripture. Philippians 4, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. 1 Thessalonians 5, in everything, give thanks. The Christian life should be a life of joy, thankfulness, and, and even awe at all that God has done for us. But we also know that's not always our experience. Why is that? Well, there is one thing that will shut down that joy and and thankfulness and awe very quickly. And it, it can happen almost instantly. It can also grow gradually. And one day you realize your joy is gone. You don't really have active fellowship with the Lord. What happened? Well, there are, there are other things that can kill joy, but the one we are looking at here in Psalm 32 is unconfessed sin. And even at hearing those words, some of us may want to tune out because unconfessed sin has already done its work. 
and you're not really interested in dealing with it. Or you're just, you're just ignoring it. And you've gotten to the point where you don't really care anymore. Our God is a personal God. He knows you. He loves you. He has given us his word that tells us all about himself and the covenant relationship that he has with us, with each one of us. And he provides for and takes care of each one of us every moment of every day. If you aren't participating and growing in that relationship with him throughout every day, you need to be concerned about it. Unconfessed sin is is something that you need to take a look at. Because sin and forgiveness are really at the center of our experience of the Christian life. When you become aware of sin in your life, there are several different responses. What do you do when you realize you have sinned? Are you the type that... You feel guilty right away, and you you go to God, and you confess it, but you still feel guilty. And you confess it over and over and over, and you still feel guilty. You feel like, maybe you shouldn't go to church, or maybe you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. You don't experience any forgiveness. And you begin to wonder, are you even a Christian? That's one response. Maybe you're on the other side. And you, you're, you're the type who too takes your sin lightly. You don't really give it a second thought. When you do the same sin again and again and again, there's, there's no real change in what you do. In fact, you might even think it's really no big deal. You basically just ignore your sin. There's another response. Are you the type who hides your sin? You know it's wrong. You know because you're convicted about it, but you cover it up. You don't want anyone to know. You might lie about it. You might have to do other sins, even worse sins, to keep it hidden. And it takes a lot of creative work to keep it hidden. Well, Psalm 32 is a psalm by David regarding sin and what to do about it. In the first half of the psalm, David illustrates this with his life as an example. The Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. He was the great godly king of Israel. We know he wrote a good portion of the scriptures. He wrote a lot of the psalms. In this one, he speaks from experience about sin. And if you've read about David, in 2 Samuel, you know why he speaks from experience about sin. 2 Samuel chapter 11 starts out, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife 
of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And she returned to her house. David, the exemplary, godly king of Israel, abused his power as the king to commit adultery. Adultery with the wife of one of his soldiers out on the battlefield. How did David respond to that sin? Well, at first it seems like he thought, no big deal. He'll get away with it. Sin without consequences. After all, he's king. He just sent her back home. But before too long, a few weeks, maybe a couple of months later, Bathsheba sent him a message. And the message said she was with child. Well, that changed things. Now there's evidence of David's sin. How is he going to respond now? Well, he decides to cover it up. He calls for Uriah to come back. And he treats Uriah well. He expects him to go to his wife. But Uriah is such an honorable soldier that he won't go enjoy his wife while the rest of the army is out on the battlefield. It would have been a good attitude for David to have had all this time, wouldn't it? So David's attempted cover-up didn't work. What else can he do? Well, it ends up he sends Joab, well, he sends Uriah back to the battlefield to, to Joab, his commander, with a letter for Joab. And the letter tells Joab to attack the city in such a way that Uriah will be killed. David's second big sin. He has someone killed to try and cover up his first big sin. And when Uriah is dead, he takes Bathsheba as his wife. There. Maybe that will cover it all up. But many months later, Nathan the prophet comes with a message from God. David's sin is not hidden. It's well known by God and David is guilty of great sin. And it's finally, at that point, when David is confronted to the face, that he confesses his sin before God. David should die for the sins that he committed. But God forgives David. And he doesn't die. Now, there were still consequences. David's, the, the relationships in David's family were a mess, with brothers killing one another and even trying to kill him. So the sins of David were great. There were horrible consequences, but David himself was forgiven. He wrote Psalm 51, probably not long after he was confronted by Nathan. And in that psalm, he pled for forgiveness and cleansing. And he also made a promise. Verses 12 and 13, he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. In the, in the title of Psalm 51, it specifically refers 
to David's sin with Bathsheba. So that's what he was talking about there. Here in Psalm 32, it it doesn't mention any specific sin. Instead, Psalm 32 is written in a general way to cover all. And David, he has learned the hard way. He's learned about sin and confession. And he's now fulfilling that promise to teach transgressors God's ways. So he's teaching us about God's ways in regard to sin and confession and forgiveness. And he begins with the end. It begins with the result of having the right understanding. David fell into great sin, hopefully greater sin than any of us ever will. And look how he begins this psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That first word, blessed, We heard it earlier. It's the same word that begins the whole Psalter in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. We say that that same word in many places in Scripture. Another one is in 1 Kings chapter 10. The queen of Sheba used it after she was blown away by hearing Solomon's amazing wisdom. After hearing and seeing everything, it says, there was no spirit left in her. She went from being the great, proud queen of Sheba to being the humble queen of Sheba, in awe of Solomon and his wisdom and his kingdom. She said, happy are your men and happy are those your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. They're the same word is translated happy. And what we normally think of the word happy or, or blessed when we do use that, they can be rather shallow or ho-him. They, they don't catch the sense of these places of what's going on. The Queen of Sheba was saying, oh, how happy, how, how blessed, how amazing it is for your people to hear your wisdom all the time. It's incredible. Unbelievable. So it's not just, oh, they are so blessed. No, she is overcome. Overcome with awe and amazement. And in a similar way, David is overcome with amazement and humility and thankfulness. David has extreme happiness over knowing his sins are forgiven. Now, of course, That's because he also knows how bad sin really is. He knows what it did to his life, to his family, to the whole nation, and to his relationship with God. We're in a fallen, sinful world. Sin is all around us. It's in the air we breathe. And if we're not careful, it's easy to become numb to it. It doesn't have to be adultery or murder like David did. And we've talked before about pornography, how prevalent that is, how destructive it is, and how, how accessible and easy it is to get tempted and pulled into it. There are many other sins. There's anger, the sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, 
sharp, cutting remarks. There's bitterness, self-centeredness, putting yourself before others and even before God. And even what we might think of as, as, as little sins, like complaining and griping about things, the list is endless. And according to the Bible, sin is any, any disobedience of God and his word. And as Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages or what, what we earn, the result of our sin is death. Now, I don't want to get confused here. We know that the gospel says Jesus died for our sins. And when we put our faith in him, we were forgiven for all of our sins. We passed out of death into life. And that, that happened to David too. But he still wrote this psalm. We can't just say, well, I believe in Jesus. And then forget about sin after that. Forgiveness isn't only at the beginning of the Christian life. It's, it's at the center of the Christian life throughout all of life. Speaking to Christians, Paul said in Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One author puts it this way, saving faith, is of such a nature that it is authenticated. It's, it's proven. It's shown to be real in a life of holiness. So every sin, even the tiniest sin, does matter. It's, it's an affront to God. Even though we're Christians, it creates a problem in our relationship with God. At one point, it seemed like David had a pretty light view of his sin. It's no big deal. If I just ignore it, it'll go away. But God didn't see it that way, and he didn't let that happen. Eventually, when Nathan came to him, David understood that his unconfessed sin stood between him and God. It was in a way similar to when a child's disobedience restricts and distorts the relationship with his parents. The disobedience must be dealt with in order to restore that relationship. And one of the gracious gifts of God is the conviction of sin. It's the, the sense of guilt when we disobey him. <clears throat> now, we can't ignore that conviction we can push it off and push it off. And eventually, if we continue to do that, we can sear our conscience. So we become numb and it really doesn't bother us anymore. That's a dangerous place to be. David didn't quite get to that point. In verses 3 and 4, he tells about his experience of being convicted of his sin. He realized it was sin, but... He wasn't fully owning up to it yet. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. Now, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So there was a period of time when David kept his sin quiet. He was hoping any problem would just go away unnoticed. And of course, he knew it was there. And as more problems 
cropped up. His conscience began to bother him more and more. Have you ever had that pit in your stomach? That feeling of guilt before God? The dread of being found out, of being caught, of being exposed. Well, David did too. It ate at him so much that he felt like he was, he was rapidly growing old. It caused him to groan. Now, we don't know if people could hear him groan or not, but inside, deep within, he was groaning over his sin and the guilt that he felt. He felt God's hand heavy upon him, and that wasn't a hand of comfort. It was a hand of discipline. God was making David uncomfortable. And we need to be glad when God makes us uncomfortable over our sin. Be glad and heed that conviction. Don't try to push it off. David was, he was a strong, fit man. He was a warrior. Yet his normal vitality and his strength, they were wasting away. Just like, like the grass around here in a long summer drought. It just dries up. How long did this go on? Well, when David was confronted, the child had already been born. So it was at least nine months that David was ignoring and hiding and, and trying to cover up his sin, maybe even longer. And during that time, God's hand was heavy upon David. But rather than confess his sin, he, he continued to try and cover it up. But finally, when Nathan confronted him and, Dave, and David knew it wasn't a secret any longer, that's when he finally confessed his sin. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. He didn't try to deny it any longer. And he didn't try to blame it on anyone else either. You see, in 2 Samuel, he simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's very important. How many times do you shift from trying to hide your sin to, to trying to blame it on someone else? It's not my fault because he did that to me. That's just another way of trying to hide it, to, to make excuses. But God knows full well who sinned and what your sin is. At this point, David didn't try to make any excuses at all. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And the result in verse 5 says, And you forgave the iniquity, the guilt of my sin. God forgave David's sin. And those were horrible sins. There were consequences that would never go away. Uriah was dead. But there's no sin too great for God to forgive when it's confessed. If, if you have something in your past that has plagued you and you think, God just can never forgive that. Well, not only can forgive God forgive that, he will forgive that. When Jesus hung on the cross and died, he took the wrath of God for all your sins. All. Even that one. And when God says in Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far 
Has he removed our transgressions from us? He means it. Confess it to him and trust what he says. So after months, maybe a year of hiding his sin and agonizing and groaning over it and over the guilt, instead of rejoicing in God, after all that, David was forgiven. It's amazing how gracious and full and how immediate God's forgiveness is. As long as you deny your sin, God says, you are guilty. But as soon as you confess to God, I have sinned against you, God says, no, you haven't. It's taken away. It's gone. As long as you deny it or hide it or ignore it, God says, you're guilty. As soon as you confess it, he says, you're forgiven. Jesus paid for it. It's gone. So now maybe we can understand a little bit better why David expressed such awe and joy in the first two verses. Let's look at them again a little bit. While being so extremely happy and overjoyed, in those two verses, David uses three different words for sin and three different words for forgiveness. The first word, first word for sin is transgression. Now that's, that's personal and in your face. It's an open defiance of God and his laws. A picture of it would be someone with a raised fist against God. It's clear rebellion. And it's forgiven. The word for forgiven here is it's lifted up. It's taken away. Flagrant rebellion against God when confessed is taken away. The second word for sin is sin. It has a root meaning of missing the mark or falling short of God's standards. It's a failure to live up to what God says. You could picture that as shooting at a target. And you miss. And the word for forgiveness there is that sin is covered. It's, it's out of sight. It's no longer brought up by God as anything against us. It's gone. The third word for sin is iniquity. Iniquity is going astray or, or deviating from the right path. And, and it's not just an accidental wandering away. Now, this is when you know this is the correct way to choose. But you choose to go a different way. And verse 2 says that intentional choosing of the wrong path, that iniquity, it's not imputed to us. That means it's not, a, it's not counted against it, us. It too is gone. Now, you can probably see as you look at all of those that the three words for sin overlap in their meanings. The three words for forgiveness do as well. But David isn't trying to list out three distinct types of sin and three distinct types of forgiveness there. No, he's showing that the forgiveness of sin, sin of, of whatever kind, whether it's against God or man, or, or whether it's great or small, whether it's conscientious or inadvertent, or whether by omission or commission, all sin is included. And the forgiveness of all sin is found in one place only. 
It's found in God through Christ's death on the cross. There and only there is all your sin forgiven. You know, the way it's worded here, David may have had Leviticus 16, verses 20 and 21 in mind, because it gives a clear picture of this complete forgiveness, and it uses those same three words for sin. It says, And when Aaron the priest has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness. All sin of every kind is gone, sent away. That's the amazingly good news in Psalm 32. But there's one phrase at the end of verse 2 that could foul this all up. Blessed is the man who has all of his sin forgiven of all types and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what does that mean? Well, we've already looked at the deceit involved in hiding or denying our sin, but, but there's more. Our confession of sin is made by a sinner. Kind of obvious, right? It's because we're a sinner that we need to confess. But that means the confession itself can be a sin and be no confession at all. This is done by the proud heart. The one with the proud heart will make confession to be seen by man. And what a great place social media and the blogs are for making confession before men. Confession can be made before others to appear, oh, so humble, oh, so godly. But but that isn't confession. Our sin is against God, and our confession must be made to God, not for show before men. Now, sure, in some cases... Restitution may need to be made. Forgiveness may, be, may need to be sought by, from those who have been harmed. But none of that is for show either. Confession, first and foremost, must honestly be made to God. The proud heart in this case is really hypocritical and seeks to look good to others rather than truly bowing in humility to God. The proud heart can also begin to see confession as a work of righteousness. It becomes a ritual to appease God's requirements as if if the confession itself somehow pays for sin. That's where monks used to whip themselves to do penance for their sin. But confession doesn't earn anything. Penance doesn't earn anything. In fact, it's another sin that needs to be confessed. Honest confession is coming to God in faith, humbly acknowledging that you have disobeyed God. The only hope for you is his forgiveness, and you don't deserve it at all. It's the amazing grace of our Savior Jesus Christ that took all of the wrath 
that sin deserves on the cross. Your sin is forgiven and removed only as your faith rests on Christ and his shed blood as he died on the cross. There's nothing else that you can do to work for or gain forgiveness. Now, verse 6 begins the second half of the psalm. It begins with the word for, or some translations, therefore. It's looking back at the first half. The first half was David drawing from his own experience as an example. So now, in light of what David has experienced and learned, as he experienced God's heavy hand of discipline on him, and he was wasting away, then experiencing true forgiveness. In light of all of that, he's now going to teach God's ways. He's going to teach how things are with sin, confession, and forgiveness. And the first thing he says is, Everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. We saw that earlier in the service in Isaiah 55. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Implied behind the, the phrase, while he may be found, is the fact that there is a time after which God will not be found. Forgiveness is available until it's too late. At some point, Jesus will return and judgment will come. We have no idea when that will be. So that, that kind of judgment, it, that's far off. But something that is near to each one of us is our own death. You know, when you're young, it seems like oh, all of life is before you. But none of us know how long we have to live. And after you die, it's too late. If you continue to push away God's heavy hand, if you continue to ignore or hide your sin, eventually you grow numb. Don't presume upon God's grace in Christ. David says, turn to God while he may be found. That's what the godly do. The godly are not those who are perfect. They're those who confess their sins. And then walk with and before God. That's something that should be a daily part of your life. Do you confess your specific sins to God throughout the week as you're made aware of them? That's what the godly do. The second part of verse 6 refers to the troubles of life. And it, it refers to them as a great flood of waters. Those who don't turn to God increase their troubles. But those who pray to him are kept safe by him. And David again brings in his own experience as an example. In verse 7 he says to God, you are my hiding place. For the godly, for those who confess their sins, God himself is their place of safety. He will preserve them from trouble and he will even sing songs of deliverance. God delights in his children. And as we walk with him, he rejoices and surrounds us with song. He sings. Now that doesn't mean 
that God's faithful people never experience difficulties. We know that's not true. But he will hold us and we will not experience judgment. In fact, in verse 8, God himself speaks in the psalm. And he says that he will teach us and guide us with his eye upon us. It shows more of the, the incredible blessedness of those who continually confess their sin and are forgiven. As we do that, God instructs us and teaches us. He guides us in life, and he always has his loving eye upon us, no matter what happens. That's what God says he does. And God expects us then to grow, to grow in wisdom and maturity. And the more wise and mature we are, the sooner we will come to him to confess our sin. The sooner we will desire to be back in fellowship with him and experience his love and grace. Contrast that, as it does in verse 9, with a horse or a mule. One that has never been tamed. Can you get near them? Can you just walk up to a wild horse? No. And you wouldn't want to, even if you could. You'd probably be kicked and trampled to death. Let's say there was a fire. And the horse or mule will die if you don't get them to safety. If you do, by some amazing feat, manage to get a rope around them, could you then just lead them to safety? You're trying to save their life. No. If you hold on to that rope, you are probably going to get hurt. They have no understanding. And they will not trust you to take them to safety. Verse 9 says, don't be like the horse or the mule. You have understanding. The place of safety and blessing is in coming to God. Not in yourself. Not in your ingenuity in hiding your sin. Go to God quickly. Confess your sin. Learn from Him and walk with Him. Daily, moment by moment. Verse 10 sums it all up in a, in a way similar to Psalm 1 with a contrast between the godly and the ungodly. It says, Many sorrows will be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And we know there are times when it seems like the wicked aren't experiencing many sorrows. Sometimes it seems like everything is going their way. But sorrow will come. And it will be eternal sorrow. And then it's too late. When judgment comes, it's too late for repentance. But for the godly, even in difficult times, what should their countenance be? Verse 11 says... Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So the godly, the righteous, the upright in heart, that's not those who are perfect. It's those who confess their sin and place their trust in God, in what he says. They, they are the ones who acknowledge their sin and know the love and forgiveness of God. And the result 
is a countenance of joy. If, if we're not truly rejoicing over our forgiveness, something is wrong. Of course, that assumes that you're not denying your sin, but you have confessed it and you're forgiven. But sometimes a person is still in agony even though they've confessed their sin. They still feel guilty. Why? What's wrong? Sometimes you'll hear people say, I just can't forgive myself. But the sin isn't against them. It's against God. Sure, there still may be consequences that that can cause grief, but that's different from guilt. If after humbly confessing your sin to God and being forgiven, you still feel guilty, the problem most likely is that you put something else before God. You don't believe what God says. Maybe your regard is for your reputation, for how it was affected by your sin. Or maybe the opinion of someone else has become your idol. And that's what you regard. Whatever it is, you need to repent of that too. Confess it and believe what the one true God says. Receive his forgiveness. Thank him. And trust in him. It's all very important to grasp because the center of our experienced faith is the forgiveness of sin. That's the road to blessedness, to walking daily with God, to having fellowship with him. Spurgeon, he put it this way, he said, forgiveness is that without which no true blessedness could ever come. Forgiveness is the center of our experienced faith. So, as with most most roads, this, this one too has a ditch on both sides. The ditch on the left is full of those who ignore their sin or they deny that they even have it. They won't confess it. And as it says in 1 John 1.10, they make God out to be a liar and the truth is not in them. If the only time that you confess your sin is when we bow together here in worship, you don't understand how bad your sin is. You don't understand the holiness of God and, and your covenant relationship with Him. Don't ignore your sin throughout the week. Confess it immediately. Not, not as a work, not as for show, but in humility before your God. Now, the ditch on the right, that has those who confess their sin, but but they still won't let it go. They wallow in guilt, and sometimes they think they're holier because they feel so bad. They keep coming back and confessing their sin over and over again. But that in itself is a sin of unbelief. Believe what God says. Confess your sin. Thank Him for His forgiveness He puts it away from you as far as the east is from the west. And then on the road is forgiveness, real forgiveness. David said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. 
And immediately it says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. When we confess it, our sin is taken away. It's covered up. And never for all of eternity is it counted against us. That's good news. It's worth singing and shouting about. And it has nothing to do with us. But it's completely by God's grace through Christ's death on the cross. And we should sing about the forgiveness that God has given to us because we know that God himself is singing and surrounding us with songs of deliverance. He's, he's that kind of God. And that's what we do in worship as we come here before him. And daily, as we walk in humble obedience and faithfulness to him. So recognize your sin. Quickly, confess it to God and in thankfulness receive his forgiveness and know he has forgiven you because he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. And then, daily, give praise to God and live in joyful, thankful fellowship with him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the complete forgiveness of sin that you have bestowed on us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Show us when we sin. Convict us of it and turn our hearts to confess it and trust completely in you. We rejoice in your love and your forgiveness and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.